Our reading is taken from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, which is found on page 1023 of the Church Bibles. One John chapter four, starting at verse one. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Well, uh, hello again, and uh, thank you very much, Nick, for reading for us from 1 John chapter 4. It would be uh, great um, if you could have that open in front of you as I speak. Um, But before we spend some time thinking about that together, uh, let me pray for us again. Let me pray. The psalmist writes, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We ask this evening, God our Father, that as we study your word together, that each of us would know the truth of that, that you would please guide our feet and light our paths as we hear you speak. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin this evening with a question. If you're a Christian, what is your job when you go to church on a Sunday? If you're a Christian, what is your job when you go to church on a Sunday, when you gather together with other Christians? Most of us who are Christians will be aware, I suspect, that we're involved in doing a number of different things when we go to church. One of those we've just been doing is praising God. That's part of what we gather together to do. We mainly do that in song and in prayer. Another job is to serve one another practically, and people do that around chambers in all sorts of different ways Sunday by Sunday, opening the building up and serving teas and coffees and greeting on the door at the start of the service and playing music and working the sound and visuals. We serve one another when we gather together as a church family. Speaking the truth in love to one another is another part of our job as Christians on a Sunday, speaking truths from the Bible into each other's lives. And that's something that we've really been growing in as a church family over recent months and years. We each perform lots of different tasks, lots of different jobs when we gather together week by week. But this evening, we're going to add another job to your list of to-dos. Because we're going to see that if you're a Christian... One of your jobs when you come to church is this, 
you are to listen out for the spirit of the Antichrist from the pulpit. That made you sit up in your seat, didn't it? You're to listen out for the spirit of the Antichrist from the pulpit. And I didn't just say that to make you sit up. I said it because John says it in 1 John chapter 4. Our little section for this evening is all about the importance of discerning between true teaching and false teaching. And John says this about one kind of teaching that Christians will be exposed to. He says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. There's a kind of teaching, says John, which might look like it has spiritual power, but which is actually deeply malevolent, which is, in John's words, of the Antichrist. It's a very strong thing to say, isn't it? So why is John quite so strong about that? Well, if you've been here over the last few Sunday evenings, we've seen together week by week that First John was written to a church which in some ways was in turmoil. A group of people from within the church had declared themselves to have a greater kind of spiritual knowledge than another group within the church. And that apparently superior group had departed from the teaching that they'd all received together from the apostles. And so one of the notes that John has been repeatedly sounding through the letter is a note of reassurance. That weak, as you might feel as Christians, if you've stuck with the apostles' teaching, you are children of God, says John. You have eternal life. But it is worth saying, I think, that he isn't just reassuring them for kind of therapeutic purposes. He doesn't just want to put their doubts at rest in order to make them feel better. He's reassuring them so they keep going. So they aren't tempted to doubt, to think they've got it wrong, that those other teachers have got it right when it comes to the Christian faith. And that links what we've been seeing over the past few weeks with what we'll see tonight. Because if doubt is one possible reason that faithful Christians might wander from authentic Christian faith, doubt that they are the real deal, well, another reason is deception. We've already seen signs of that in 1 John up to this point. We caught a glimpse of it in chapter 2. If you just scan down to chapter 2, verse 26, John says this, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. See, the problem for the Christians to whom John's writing isn't just that they feel weak and unsure, though they do. It's that the people who've departed from the apostles' teaching are actively trying to deceive them into doing the same thing. And we get a sense of that, actually, in a reading for this evening from chapter 4. In verse 1, notice John's command is to test the spirits. And that's presumably because these two streams of teaching, well, they might actually look pretty similar. So the kind of false teaching that's spreading in John's day well, it might actually look quite spiritual. It might sound as though it could possibly be true. And so even though John describes it as the spirit of the Antichrist, he uses that really strong language, what makes this false teaching so potent is that it doesn't, well, doesn't look all that dangerous necessarily. 
Let's think about that a bit more under our first heading this evening. There are some headings on the back of the service sheet which you were handed on your way in this evening. The first of those is don't believe every Christian-sounding teaching you hear. False prophets are real, many, and dangerous. Now, I wonder how it makes you feel when I use that phrase, or John uses that phrase, false prophets, or when I mention something like false teaching. My guess is that for some of us, it might well sound unnecessarily divisive, as though I'm drawing unhelpful lines, that the church should be all about unity, not about calling other people out about what they believe. Maybe it even sounds a bit arrogant to talk about false prophets, because for there to be false prophets, there also have to be true ones. And who are we? Who am I to judge which is which? Isn't the really humble thing, isn't the truly Jesus-like thing just to let it slide, to live and let live? All of that could sound quite persuasive were it not for what the Bible actually says. Because the Bible is very clear that there will be people who look like the real deal, who look like Christian teachers, but whose teachings are actually dangerous, and Jesus himself told his followers expressly to expect it. He said this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They're going to look just like you, says Jesus, but they've actually come to eat you. Now, that isn't a popular idea in our culture at all, is it? In our culture, what often determines whether you listen to someone or not is whether they're sincere about what they say. But it is so important to have a category for false teaching because there are things which are said by those who look like Christian teachers, who look like Christian churches, which are just not true. And that really matters, not just because we always want to be right for the sake of being right, but because John says that kind of teaching, while it looks spiritual, well, it's the spirit of the Antichrist. And that is a very, very serious thing. And I do wonder if we have that kind of category in our armory when it comes to Christian teaching. When you're listening to a podcast that you think might be a bit ropey in terms of its theology, but well, you really like the person who hosts it because they're quite funny and they're engaging and they have some really interesting insights. Or when you're choosing a book to read when you're on holiday this summer and, and there's a Christian author who you know there's a, he's a bit out there, but you don't want to be too narrow when it comes to Christian things. And, and, and reading widely is going to help to broaden your horizons a bit. Or perhaps even more painfully, when a friend starts going along to a church which you know has some radically different ideas about God and the gospel, but in your heart of hearts, you're just happy they're going to church somewhere. Surely that's better than nothing. John would have us at least think this is a serious issue because not all Christian teaching is of God, or at least Christian-sounding teaching is of God. Some of it might actively be anti-God. 
So don't believe everything you hear just because the person saying it claims to be or looks like a Christian teacher. But it is one thing to be persuaded of that. It's quite another to know how to test whether a Christian teacher is a false prophet. Because not every theological difference is a spirit of the Antichrist issue, is it? It is important to say that. So how do we tell between the two? Well, John's going to give us a bit of a rubric to enable us to do just that. He's going to tell us, wait for it, to test and trace. Yeah, that's right. I can hear some of you flinching, even as I use that phrase. I'm very sorry. Is it? It's maybe a bit too soon to use that kind of line. But it is what John tells his readers to do, to test and to trace. He's firstly going to tell his readers that to discern false teaching from true teaching, we apply a Jesus test. We ask, what does this teaching say about Jesus, particularly about who he is and about what he came to do? And then he's going to tell us to trace the teaching. Trace it back to its source. Is this teaching from God or is it from the world? Test and trace. That's the rubric John applies, so that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time together. Let's look firstly at testing. Test the teaching you hear. Is it correct in what it says about Jesus? Just look with me at verse 2 of chapter 4 again. John writes this. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, if you were here last Sunday evening, we were thinking about uh, chapter 3, which was all about how to spot genuine Christian love from a counterfeit. And we said last week that John trains us to spot a counterfeit by holding it up against the genuine article, in much the same way as a border officer or a border cop might spot a counterfeit passport by comparing it with the real deal. Well, John does the same thing here again in chapter 4. He hands us a copy of the genuine passport in verse 2 so that we know it when we see it. By this, he says, you know the Spirit of God. Or in other words, this is what Christian teaching should look like. And it is interesting just what feature of Christian teaching he identifies, isn't it? Verse 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The hallmark of genuine Christian teaching, says John, is that it confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh. Now remember that John's writing into a real-life situation, and so it's likely that part of the false teaching that was spreading around the church in John's day was a denial that Jesus really had come in the flesh. It's likely that people were suggesting that Jesus was actually some kind of spirit who just looked like a person, that he wasn't really truly human. And it might not come as a surprise to some of us that that would be considered to be false teaching. So if you're visiting a church over the summer holidays and the preacher mentions in the passing that Jesus was some kind of disembodied spirit, I'm guessing that quite a few of us would probably clock that there's something not quite right about what that teacher's saying. But to be honest, I'd be surprised if you were to hear that kind of teaching 
if you're on holiday. Because to my knowledge, Scotland isn't ten a penny with churches claiming that Jesus wasn't a real man. It might be, but I, I, I certainly don't think it is. So is this test, is the Jesus test, is it really a bit irrelevant for us in 21st century Scotland? Well, I don't think so. Because whilst Jesus' humanity was clearly the theological hot potato in John's day, as a kind of standalone discrete issue, when we start to dig into John's letter as a whole, we start to see some of the reasons John thinks that this is such a big issue. Now, we were given the game Jenga as a birthday present for one of our boys a few weeks ago. If you've never played the game Jenga before, it's basically a tower of wooden bricks. And the object of the game is you each take it in turns to remove bricks from the tower without it all falling down. I can thoroughly recommend the Paw Patrol edition. It really is um, a cracker. And we were playing it a couple of weeks ago when one of our boys turned to me and said, it's funny, Dad, that the tower's made up of so many different bricks, but all it takes is to remove one of them and the whole tower comes tumbling down. And it was quite a profound moment until he then kicked a football right into the tower, took the whole thing down anyway, which was a bit less profound. But the principle itself was true. True of the game of Jenga. You only have to remove one brick to bring the whole thing down. And I think that kind of principle is why what John says in 1 John 4 is a much wider issue than it first looks. Because John talks about Jesus a lot through this letter. And again and again and again, he comes back to Jesus' death. And particularly to the benefits that people receive as a result of Jesus' death. Just scan through some of that with me. Look back to chapter 1, if you would. Chapter 1, verse 7. John says this. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Or look on to chapter 2, verse 2. He, that is Jesus, is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Skip on to chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us. That's a really small snapshot of the number of verses that I could have chosen to make the same point. Just notice how much of what John says depends on Jesus being a flesh and blood human being. If Jesus wasn't a real flesh and blood person, then his blood can't have cleansed us from all sin, chapter 1, because to put it crassly, there was no blood. He couldn't, chapter 3, lay down his life for us if he'd never taken it up in the first place. So when we reach John, 1 John chapter 4, John isn't just dealing with the denial of the incarnation, although he is. He's dealing with a threat to all that Jesus lived by his living and dying among us as fully God and fully man. What he's dealing with is a threat to the gospel. That's the kind of territory that John is defending. If you remove this one idea from Christian teaching, 
that Jesus came in the flesh, well, the Jenga tower comes tumbling down. And that does mean that the kind of teaching John wants to call out is broader than it first looks. And it also means that it is live and well in Scotland today. I remember around six or seven years ago, there was a public debate which took place in Edinburgh between two church leaders. One of them was arguing clearly and faithfully for the position that Jesus really did die as a sacrifice for sin, as a sacrifice for human rebellion against God to make us right with God again. The other church leader, who was the minister of a relatively large church here in the city, denounced that position. Jesus dying to take away human sin, he said, is ghastly theology. His words, not mine. Now, John would place that kind of teaching squarely within the false prophet category. Why? Well, because it's denying what Jesus achieved by coming in the flesh. Reconciliation between humanity and God by dying on the cross. So listen, if you do find yourself on holiday this summer and visiting another church, or listening to a podcast, or, or, or watching, watching a worship service on YouTube, or, or reading a Christian book, or if you find yourself sitting in a Chalmers Church service, and it is important we say that, if you find yourself sitting in a Chalmers Church service, and you find yourself hearing someone say or imply that Jesus didn't really come as a flesh and blood human being, that he didn't die as a flesh and blood human being in order to take away human sin, if you hear that kind of thing being spoken or implied, don't believe it. Because it isn't true. Now, maybe you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, and, uh, and all of this kind of discussion about false teaching and, and antichrists, it might sound uh, like a bit of philosophical navel-gazing. Uh, you know, lighten up, guys. Surely it doesn't matter all that much. You're splitting hairs, aren't you? You see, this is exactly why it matters. The good news of Jesus is that God sent his son, fully God and fully man, to die a criminal's death in order to pay the penalty for our wrongdoing before God. And the restitution or the right standing before God that that has achieved is available to anyone who trusts in him, including you and including me. But all of that means that to twist that message, to change that good news, it isn't just an intellectual game. We aren't talking about the number of angels dancing on the head of a pin this evening. It is serious, serious stuff. It's dangerous both to Christians who might be deceived into believing the wrong thing and it's dangerous to people who haven't yet trusted in Jesus who might disbelieve a distorted version of the Christian faith and dismiss it altogether. And that's why John took this issue so seriously, and it's why we have to take this issue really seriously when we see it alive and well in Scotland today. Test the teaching you hear. Is it correct in what it says about Jesus? Yeah, but that isn't the only kind of assessment John commands his readers to make, the Jesus test. He also says they should, they should trace the teaching they hear in verses 4 to 6. So let's think about that for a few minutes. Trace the teaching you hear. Does it come from God or from the world? 
Now, I wonder how you decide whether to believe a news story or not. The way that lots of us receive and process news media has changed pretty radically over the last few years. So according to a fairly huge poll conducted in the United States a couple of years ago, around 55% of US adults get the bulk of their news information from social media. And in one sense, that should mean that people are far more up to date with world events as they're happening. We should be better informed. But apparently, you can't believe everything you read on social media. Who knew? So when you're being bombarded with news updates, how do you decide whether to trust one or not? Well, um, one of the key indicators is the source of the story, isn't it? So a story that's been well-researched, which, which cites reliable eyewitness sources on the ground, maybe it's written by someone who themselves was on the scene, well, that's at least worth listening to, isn't it? And it's probably more believable than the rambling status update written by a distant relation you haven't spoken to in 20 years. I'm sure you love your second cousin twice removed very much, but he probably doesn't know the ins and outs of the Colombian election process, if we're being honest with ourselves. We often decide whether to trust a piece of information to be true based on the source of that piece of information, where it's come from. And the reason I mention that is that John's second gauge, his, his benchmark about whether to believe Christian teaching as being true or not, is to trace its source. Where did it come from? And how did it get here? Some teaching about God can be trusted, says John, well, because it comes from God. Look with me at verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Now, the we there isn't the church John's writing to. The we is John and the apostles. And John's saying you can trust what we tell you as apostles well, because we didn't just come up with it off our own backs. It came from God. And we are his accredited spokespeople. And we saw that on the first Sunday evening in this series. That's how John began the letter, by accrediting all they had to say by the fact that he had seen and touched Jesus. Now, for people in John's day, they had the apostles, apostles physically walking around among them. We don't. It's fair to say, but we do have their words, and you're holding them right now. How do you know whether a spirit comes from God or not? Well, you know whether it comes from God or not by whether it comes through God's appointed spokespeople. If it comes from or accords with the Bible. And you can distinguish that from false teaching, says John, because false teaching has a different source. Just look with me at verse 5. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. The they in verse 5 is the false teachers, the people who are claiming to have this kind of special knowledge. And John says, when it comes to telling you the truth about God, well, their sources are really, really weak. They're claiming to know about God, but they're from the world and they're writing for the world. 
And to be frank, you just can't trust that kind of source, says John. Now, what does all of that mean for us? Well, it means that when you're trying to do what John would have us do, when you're trying to test the spirits to work out whether some, some teaching is true or not, well, ask yourself whether a church's teaching or a preacher's teaching or a podcaster's teaching or a writer's teaching, ask yourself whether it's tracking with the Bible or if it's basically a spiritual-sounding version of our culture's worldview. Let me give you an example of that. Throughout this series in 1 John, one of the, the kind of go-to doctrinal issues for those of us who've been leading the series to use as an illustration have been issues of personhood, of sexuality. And that isn't because Christians are obsessed with those issues more than any other issue. It's because at the moment, those, those issues are at the frontiers of our culture's worldview. And as the world is trying to move the goalposts in those particular areas, well, it should come as no surprise that those are the ways in which false teaching will masquerade as spiritual-sounding teaching. And it can sound really attractive. Which kind of teaching is going to be more popular? A call to take up a cross to follow a crucified saviour or affirmation that as long as a particular behaviour feels good to me, God gives it the green light. Of course it's the latter. Of course that sounds more attractive. But it doesn't make it true. And so John would have us trace the teaching. Is it from God? Is it through his apostles? Or is it from the world? Is it a spiritual-sounding version of, of the worldview our culture's already bought into? Now, none of, none of that's to say that genuine Christian teaching is unattractive, because that's not true. It is extraordinarily attractive. And nor is it to say that if we communicate the Bible in a way that's incomprehensible to the world around us, we must have got it right, because that isn't the case at all. We, Chalmers Church, desperately want everyone to hear and to understand the good news of Jesus. But we want them to understand and to hear the real good news of Jesus as God has told it to us. Not a version of it that's been twisted or molded in order to make it more palatable to our culture. And so as well as testing the teaching we hear to see if it's about the real Jesus or not, about what he really has come to do or not, we also want to trace the teaching we hear. Does it come from God or from the world? Now, I'm conscious that all of that might sound pretty terrifying, that it's your job to discern truth from error, and that some people are deliberately going to be trying to lead you astray and to trip you up. And not only that, the stakes involved are just so high, aren't they? But as we draw towards a close, it is just one, it highlighting one verse we haven't really given that much attention to so far. Look with me again at verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
Now, the illustration I used earlier about knowing which kind of news story to trust, it might have made discerning spiritual truth from error sound like it's just a case of being smart enough or, or knowledgeable enough or savvy enough. And it is important to say that it does involve switching on our brains. It does involve thinking carefully about what to believe and what not to believe. But wonderfully, as Christians, it isn't something we do by ourselves. Because John says that the Holy Spirit, that God himself, lives within Christians. And he is greater than the world. He is greater than the voices that would mislead or deceive. And so as we test the spirits, we try and discern whether they're true or not by what they tell us of Jesus. And as we trace the spirits, we look to discern whether they're true or not by whether they accord with the Bible, whether they come from God or not. Well, so too we rely on the help of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to help us discern what is right about God. For he who is in you, Christian, is greater than he who is in the world. Let's take a moment or two to ask him for his help to discern truth from error and to stick with the truth now. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us through the scriptures, showing us what you're like, and telling us of the remarkable things that you've done for us and done in us in the person of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would please help each one of us as we listen to Christian teaching in all of its guises to test it and to trace it, to discern what is correct and what is false about you, and to stick like glue to that which is true. And for any here or any listening in who've yet to trust in you, we pray, Lord, that by your word you would please draw them to yourself even this evening. Please convince of the extraordinary kindness that you've shown to us in Jesus, in the real flesh and blood Jesus who lived and died among us. And please convince that it is absolutely worth owning that good news for ourselves by trusting in him for forgiveness and for eternal life. We ask all of these things for our joy and for your glory, and we do so in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.